What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Slims Presents podcast, now renamed Between You, Me, and Jose. Between You, Me, and Jose is sponsored by Tixie. Uh, we do giveaways with Tixie every month. It's an app. You can also use it on the web. Just go to Tixie.com. They operate in eight different cities across the U.S. right now. They're in San Francisco, obviously. They're based out of Portland. They are in Seattle. They're in Athens, Georgia, Atlanta. They're in Austin, Dallas, and Houston as well. And it's basically, they gamify concert giveaways. So if you sign up, you get 10 tokens every day. You can allocate those 10 tokens to whatever show you want to win tickets to. At the end of the contest period, whoever has the most tokens allocated to that show wins the tickets. And you can get all kinds of shows there. We got a bunch of shows up there right now. We have Particle at the Music Hall. We have Lacuna Coil at Slims, Invasion at Slims, Papadocio, a whole bunch of stuff. And they do other cool venues as well. They work with DNA Lounge down the street and Public Works and Knockout. So. Uh, if you like going to shows and you can't always afford it, definitely go download the Tixie app, uh, get yourself some free concert tickets, and it's pretty fun at the same time. So uh, thank you to Tixie for sponsoring the podcast, uh, Tixie.com. And now it's time for the show. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Oldacre. Next to me, special guest, Donnell. And our featured guest for the night is Robbie Martin, a.k.a. Fluorescent Gray, a.k.a. Label Boss of Record Label Records, a.k.a. Media Mogul at Media Roots. <laughs> <laughs> he does a whole bunch of shit there. He, you write stuff, uh, you direct documentary videos, you do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, definitely check out MediaRoots.org. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you can check out some of his uh, recent work, like the American Anthrax documentary, which is awesome. And... Uh, if you're a little bit more open, check out the American Bisque documentary, which is a little bit more abstract, but equally as awesome. So welcome to the podcast, Robbie Martin. Thanks for having me, Chris. How's it going? It's fine evening. Are we supposed to say what time it is? Um, or, you know, or it's in fine. Evening? Okay. <laughs> okay. We are recording this in the evening on an undisclosed date and broadcasting it at a later date. It's warm outside. That's great. We could just say the date in which it's going to come out, so it'll seem like... Um, it's yeah, it's no, like I'm just kidding. the 25th, <laughs> I think this is coming out. Cool. Um, so, Robbie, like I said, does a lot of really cool uh, stuff for MediaRoots.org, which is a site that your sister, Abby Martin, started, Yeah. Um, and who now works for Russia Today. You might have seen her show, Breaking the Set. Uh, you also might have seen her making headlines recently. Uh, for coming out on Russia Today's airwaves uh, in opposition of the Russian government's um, invasion of yes. Alabama. But but also I just wanted to emphasize she was also criticizing the U.S. government's role too. True. true. Yes, yes. But, um, you know, she's making headlines now. She's doing yeah. big things. Uh, we wanted to have her tonight, but um, she's obviously operating out of um, D.C. right now, so. Yeah. Couldn't make it happen, but we hope to have her sometime in the future. But um, Abby started Media Roots. When did, when did she start that? Out of college? No, actually, when she was out of college, she she worked for um, a place called Your Network um, in San right. Diego doing doing um, her own like news segments there. And then I think she started Media Roots when she, when she finished with that, which I think was around maybe 2007, 2008. So probably you guys wrong have, on that, um, but 
you guys uh, did the Media Roots podcast. Um, are you still recording episodes in that? Yeah, yeah. But since she's doing breaking the set now, she doesn't have nearly as much time as she used to. Right. And um, but we do it about, I'd say, sometimes once every two weeks. And then right now we're doing it maybe more like once a month. I definitely recommend everybody check out the Media Roots podcast. It's There's a lot of great episodes in there. You guys have covered a lot of interesting topics. Um, everything from uh, the anthrax attacks. You did one on 9-11. Um, you did one with Trevor Paglin, which is one of my favorite episodes. Um, if you guys don't know Trevor Paglin, go look up that name. Um, what's, where did the podcast idea come from for you guys? What What was that? Well, I think it just it started with um, with when Abby and I would get together because when Abby lived in San Diego, um, we hadn't really connected in a in a political sense yet. Like we had some crossover in our beliefs, and I think we sort of had a mutual interest in things like nine eleven and stuff like that. Um, and when she moved back up to the Bay Area, when she moved to Oakland, when we would get together, we would just have these like hour and a half long conversations, you know where there was no interruption of us just going off on these crazy tangents about just all the shit that was happening, you know, with, with Obama and the way the pendulum seemed to swing the other way and all the liberals started to sort of fall asleep, you know, about being anti-war and all that stuff. Right. So I think just that combined with the fact that, you know, I already had a little bit of experience, you know, recording bands and a little bit of audio engineering experience. I was just like, you know, I already have the microphones and the, yeah. You know, the equipment, why don't we just try actually recording this next time we go off, you know? So that's what we started doing. Um, and at first we started doing it like in a much more traditional manner where it was just, we would have an outline and we would, you know, have the headlines for the last week or so and just sort of bounce through those. But as it went on, we, we just sort of let shit just flow naturally. Right. Can I say shit? You can say okay. You okay, want. great. Okay, just want to make sure we're smoking weed on a podcast. You okay, can say shit. We, that's we're not there yet. We're going to be, but yeah. <laughs> that's a spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> Indeed. So, um, with uh, what did you learn from doing these podcasts and starting to put your own um, media out there and, and and joining the conversation of uh, the new type of media? Was uh, did people latch onto it? Uh, did it take some convincing? Uh, how how did how do you feel it played out? Well, I, I mean, I think what didn't take any convincing is that people were already following Abby at that point as sort of like a political voice. Um, right. And so this was before before Russia Today even. Be- came way before, yeah. I think it was maybe at least two years before breaking the set, and then she had worked on Russia today as an anchor before breaking the set even. So, um, so yeah, um, we, when we were working on the podcast, um, it, it was, it was kind of strange at first, at least for me. I mean, she had already been putting herself out there in right, a political yeah. sense for years before me, you know, I had only done the music thing. So like, right. It, it was, it was almost like a sort of like a test for me because, I, I saw a different side of myself where I was actually much more self-conscious about putting my own political ideas out there to like a, you know, an actual audience versus something like music. Um, and 
I don't know, it took me like a year to sort of get over this sort of weird self-conscious feeling I would get, you know, even yeah. listening to my own self do the podcast was kind of like, right. Ugh. Like, and then even listening to some of the older episodes now, one of the things I've learned doing a podcast is that my opinions have changed over time. And right. some of the things I've said on podcast two years ago, so I cringe at sometimes, but you know, that's kind of the nature of doing political work or doing this kind of stuff as you evolve as like a human being, you know, it's kind of like just sort of the, you know, how you, you, it's, it's, you kind of have to accept that, that you're going to get shit wrong right. and that you're going to say some things that were sounded kind of stupid, you know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, but, um, I mean, I've just, for me, it's, it's, I'm much better at doing the podcast with her than like writing about, you know, something. Yeah. like if I tried to write about the anthrax attacks, it would seem super dry. It would probably, you know, 10 people would read it and, you know, maybe some people would take something away from it. But I don't know. The podcast just gives it, it just makes it much more free flowing. And, and especially to have someone like my sister who's like, you know, sort of cut from the same cloth. It's, it's great. You know, I couldn't ask for a better co-host. So uh, let's let's explain for people that don't know a little bit about um, where you come from, because we mentioned in terms of doing the podcast that it was a little bit of a challenge for you to be putting yourself out there. And by the time the podcast came around, I mean, you had already been doing music for a long time yeah. and putting yourself out there in a in a sense. But there's a lot of there's a big difference between uh producing electronic music which is you can be very um removed and you can create a barrier between yourself and of course and the yeah. work and you don't you don't have to put your face on anything you don't have to put your voice in it, on anything totally um but uh why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started um doing music um because uh, for those of you who don't know robbie has a great record label called record label records uh, where he releases his own music and a lot of other awesome artists. Um, uh, Nomo Ogo. Uh, who else do you have on your label? I can't remember right now. Um, Dalglish. Um, uh, Kosak. Um, Brian E. Oh, Brian E. Definitely check out Brian E. Yeah. He's fucking amazing. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he pretty much like is one of like the most awesome, like Italo disco, like 70s electronic kind of throwback guys um god a bunch of stuff uh geez i'm having i'm drawing a blank right now oh kush aurora who's from oh, yeah, from definitely. the bay area um he's out here in san francisco he does shows pretty regularly he's awesome um my own stuff uh of course because i run my own label so i get to release my own music <laughs> on it um uh under the name fluorescent gray um yeah i released uh something by scorn um yeah, it's given me the opportunity to release stuff by like people who, you know, musical colleagues that I respect and admire the music of, and then also like sort of musical heroes of mine, like like Scorn, um, right. Mick Harris is a badass. Like he's, I just like, you know, I love his stuff. Well, how did you get into producing music yourself? What was it that got you into making electronic experimental music? Um. I think it started when I heard um, Download, uh, the Skinny Puppy uh, 
side project. Right. Um, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but I was like around 15, maybe 16. And when I heard that album, uh, I was already sort of into Skinny Puppy. I was just discovering all this like obscure industrial music. Um, you know, the, the typical trajectory of like finding out about Nine Inch Nails and then right. <laughs> going off to all the other artists on Nothing Records, you know, uh-huh. about Marilyn Manson CD, Portrait of American Family. Um, and I found out about Coil, you know, and I, and I read about them, how they were signed to Nothing Records, but they were working on their album and couldn't find their album on Nothing Records. So then I just like found, you know, Love Secret Domain at a record store and totally blew my mind when I heard it. And, um, I, I didn't even, at the time, I didn't even really think, I want to try making this kind of music. I think it was just an intersection of, like, being, you know, like, taking guitar lessons, um, you know, wanting to get into, like, alternative rock music. Like, I wanted to be in a band, basically. Right. And, uh, and how'd that work out? It didn't work <laughs> out. I mean, most of the people I knew who were in bands and who were actually, like, fucking awesome musicians were all, like, Christian punks. Really? Like, MXPX... Mr. T experience, you know, like right, yeah. the probably like, you know, not to say Lookout Records has any redeemable artists on it necessarily, but the worst of Lookout Records, you <laughs> right. know, like the kind of like the, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So those are all the musicians I knew in, in high school. And then eventually I just started, I remember like I got a wah pedal for my guitar and I started just, you know, I was like, oh, this is like really cool that I can sort of replicate these weird parts of Rage Against the Machine songs and you know, stupid shit like that. And then eventually I realized you can, you know, get we- other weird sounds to do a guitar, you know, using like remote controls. Um, you know, when you put a remote control, TV remote control up to a guitar, you can get sort of weird, you know, right, beeping yeah. signals and stuff like that. So th- I would just like spend hours by myself <laughs> in my room just making these weird sounds. And, you know, I was already sort of a computer geek at the time. So I had like Cool Edit, which was like a pro, yeah. you know, program for Windows. Excellent program. Yeah. Excellent. Still excellent to this day. Um, and, uh, we just like record these sounds into my computer, you know, and like layer them on top of each other doing like mix, mix paste, you know, like I wouldn't even use like a multi track recorder or anything like that. Um, and that's just kind of where it started. You know, I just, I eventually just sort of indirectly, like without even trying to replicate the stuff I was hearing, I sort of realized that just experimenting in a, in sort of a musical context is you can actually get some pretty immediately pleasurable results from not knowing how to do anything. I mean, pretty much, I mean, not to denigrate experimental music, but (laughs) like you can, I mean, you can get some pretty cool shit from being a total amateur with a guitar and an amp, you know? Yeah. It's the, the punk rock ethos. Yeah. You don't need to know how to play. You just totally have the, the desire to make it happen. And then I, and then to bring it back to download, cause I mentioned that, that download album, I think it was the furnace, their first album. Um, and it had like Genesis Peorage from Throbbing Gristle on it. It had Mark Spybee from Zoviet France on it. It had Kevin Key from Skinny Puppy. Um, and I remember I was like, oh, well, I've already heard Throbbing Gristle and Psych TV. I've already heard Skinny Puppy, but who's this like Soviet France band? You know, like they seem really mysterious to me and I couldn't find any music of theirs online or anything like that at the time. I mean, this is like pre-MP3 Napster. Yeah. Things so, were a little bit different back then. Totally. And I remember, you know, I had already gone to Amoeba Records in Berkeley like a handful of times. And I remember that they had an experimental section. Yeah. 
And that was sort of like totally foreign to me the first two times I walked in there. And then, you know, Soviet France, when I looked them up online, it was like they were experimental. So I was like, oh, wait, you know, now I got to go back to Amoeba and try to find Soviet France. So I got a Soviet France CD called Garista at Amoeba. And I mean, it literally, if you if you listen to Garista, it's Soviet France's first CD. It literally sounds like someone with an amp, a guitar, a microphone, and a few effects pedals just doing, you know, just some raw, primal punk rock shit with yeah. no, you know, no foundation. I mean, it, it so it kind of made me realize so that I had this like aha moment where I was like, people actually, this is like accepted. Like people, you know, yeah. you can release something like this. And people, you can press it on CD. Like it's not just, you know, it's. I, I I thought it was something that would be very trivial to people until I realized that these people were respected. You know, Soviet France was respected. I mean, and then now I'm like a huge fan of their work. And right. I was I w- didn't realize I was listening to their very first album that they had done on like a four track. But I just it just opened up this entirely new world for me. And and I think that's when. You know, it was then I started to get into stuff like Aphex Twin and and IDM um, and stuff like Scorn, uh, Coil, of course, I already mentioned. Right. And there was a Coil mailing list back in (laughs) um, the the late 90s. And uh, that was was probably where I got like discovered like half of the music I listen to now. Yeah. You know, at least, Um, you know, everything from Tortoise to um stereo lab i mean you know yeah kind of like how watam is now but for you know me as a teenager you know back on aol it's it's interesting how how the internet has evolved since yeah since uh back then isn't it yeah uh, (laughs) i mean now there's something to be said for the availability of music that any kid can essentially have access to pretty much anything ever recorded within seconds they can yeah they can at least check it out mm-hmm. and they can also have some kind of context uh through something like a youtube's recommendation algorithm that actually seems to be pretty effective in recommending similar things mm-hmm. there are, there are kids today that you know learn about the most obscure music in such an easy way mm-hmm. that uh i mean i don't know what whether that's good or not i mean I think it, in some ways it, it cheapens things a little bit that you don't have to go through the the journey of yeah, discovering yeah. all these things and uh, the awkwardness of being the of the only person that knows about it. Totally, um, sort of helps fuel the creative process in a way. Um, That's true. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent there are still some. There's still a lot a lot of that that is curated by sort of the people who are in charge of or who sort of control the the flow of information on the internet like the you know the blogs or the right, yeah. wikipedia editors yeah. or you know all the all that kind of stuff but there's and and like when you look back on you know like an artist like can or faust nowadays is yeah. you know they're seen as like gods i mean they seem to have like thousands and thousands of more fans than they did pre-internet you know like yeah. right before the internet so there's definitely a lot of that going on where like you know an artist like that like blows up now right um and is like you know hailed you know i mean it just it's almost like a the cult following breaks through the mainstream in a sense yeah well, um, that's, that's an interesting 
interesting concept that kind of ties into some of the other things that I want to talk about tonight is the ability to, well, let, let's say like the natural evolution of the, the punk rock mindset mm-hmm. where you have a, a lot of young people that are very creative that are now able to say, you know what, fuck this. Like, fuck what is existing currently. Uh-huh. I can do my own shit. I can put it out there. And if people like it, great. If they don't, who gives a shit? But this kind of also ties into, I think, I mean, I see a direct correlation between this sort of uh, mindset and the evolution of something like Media Roots, uh, something like even this podcast where uh, normal people can can sit down and say, you know what? fuck what is out there i'm gonna do what i think needs to be out there and uh i'm gonna contribute as well and before where it was sort of most culture was established by this mainstream narrative now you have access to so many different perspectives uh that i i feel at least in some respect the mainstream uh power that they used to have is sort of crumbling uh-huh um but do you think that you that coming out of this world where you were first exposed to uh, experimental and electronic music and the idea that you could make something out of something that uh, other people might not even consider an instrument yeah. and do something expressive out of it and put it out there for the world to digest, do you think that this, this has an influence on how you wound up what you're doing what you're doing today on on the more political side yeah i i think so and it definitely um and i think another aspect of experimental music that kind of has another parallel with like you know the work that i do in politics is um i think i heard this phrase on actually the the show house of cards uh oh yeah i haven't seen it yet but um yeah, I don't want to go off on a House of Cards tangent, but it's like a ridiculously on-point show about, you know, Washington, D.C. insiders and yeah. main characters, a, a congressman. Um, yeah, anyways. <laughs> on the, the Kevin Spacey show. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but on the show, uh, uh, I heard this phrase of looking for, like, he hired someone, like some political consultant guy, to look for the blind spots, okay. like to find things that, other people aren't looking at um and i think that in experimental music at least it's like sort of the ethos behind at least like literal experimental music you know in the literal sense that it's actually experimental is that you're trying to find areas of music that have not been explored yet you know and that could be anything from you know areas that have not been explored at all to area you know little areas that maybe um you know haven't been explored thoroughly enough um and I think in politics, that's kind of what drives me because I'm not an experienced writer. I don't have, I don't have great writing abilities. Um, I, I don't have the television presence of, uh, you know, someone like Abby Martin. Um, so well, I'm breaking the bread on yeah, Russia today. <laughs> who happens to be my sister, awesome um, sh- TV show host. Um, so I think that's where my strength is, and that's kind of where I, where I've got, you know taken most of my inspiration from you know my philosophy in general which is 
in politics and in sort of like globe, you know, geopolitical, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, something, for example, like the anthrax attacks is what I see as like a blind spot that is extremely important, but for some reason or another, uh, or another it's been either passed over or just neglected. Um, people have neglected to look at it closely, like especially in the mainstream press, but not just in the mainstream press, but like the alternative press. Um, and I don't know, that's, that's kind of what, I, what drives me in in sort of journalism and, and politics is just trying to find areas which speak to me but are not necessarily things that people have you know really delved into too heavily right so um i want to frame in context for our listeners um back in i think it was 2004 uh robbie with one of his friends well, what's his name ben Ben um, Vanderford did a video that um, was a beheading hoax. And this was at the time of the launch of the Iraq war, where there were uh, news stories about Americans being beheaded or. Uh, it was about two months after the Nick Berg beheading. Right. Happened. And so you guys made this video and in your minds, it was always supposed to be a hoax video. It was supposed to be obviously not real yeah um but but there was some ambiguity inherently in it where we didn't say either way we right we all we did was upload it to um file sharing networks like right. kazaa mm -hmm. and stuff like that yeah and uh yeah but sorry continue well, your uh, i mean you can, you can <laughs> chip in in here as well this is your story but uh the story was eventually picked up by uh news stations all over the world. It started yeah. on a on an Arab station, I guess. Apparently. That's and, what the US government says. And was picked up by pretty much everybody. And nobody yeah. nobody bothered to verify that it was real. Nobody bothered to check up on it. Mm -hmm. Nobody checked any facts. Nobody No. I probably even watched it to see, oh, this looks kind of fake. Probably not, yeah. They That's just put point. it out there. And um I think this is something that we're starting to see more and more. Uh, with the availability of information on the internet is that people can now sort of see the bullshit even more clearly than they used to be able to because you can you can yourself fact check things mm -hmm. relatively easily um, and we're starting to see just how much of our news is not fact checked is just parroting back press oh releases God. and yeah so Tell us a little bit about your experience with what happened uh, after this hoax video and how, I mean, was this your first exposure to this sort of world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had always had a cynical view of of the U.S. government and of media before, you know, just like kind of more just like a naive, but also cynical, just pessimistic view of the whole system. You know, I thought it was bullshit, but I wasn't really informed about it. You know, I was, I think that happened in 2004. So I was, I think I was 23 when it happened. Um, you know, I was more or less like a Democrat at the time. Right. You know, I think yeah. I even voted for John Kerry uh, right. at the time. Yeah. So to say that I was like politically informed um, before that would be completely inaccurate. Like I, like I, I think it definitely, it catapulted me into just like, holy shit. Like, I, I mean, it, 
you know, it, it, I had this belief, you know, just intuitively that, that this media was bo- mostly bullshit, but I didn't really know why or how or really understood the inner workings of it. And this sort of totally vindicated this mostly uninformed, you know, cynical belief that I had previously had. So then I thought, well, there's definitely something to this that there's, there's really, there really are a lot of fucked up aspects of the way the mainstream media does things. And I want to like find out exactly how, how it works, you know, like who, who, um, spreads the stories first? How do they get picked up so fast? Um, why don't they fact check, you know, um, things like that. And it was extremely, um, it was like one of the most intense learning experiences of my life to really understand just how bad it is. You know, what what were your intentions with the video in the first place? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't even my idea. It was, uh, it was my friend Ben's idea. And he was the, the story of the, the reasons he did the video was he was running for San Francisco district supervisor at the time. (laughs) And he thought that it would be a good way to, like make like some sort of viral campaign video. This is the, I mean, he had yeah. some pretty fucking crazy ideas. I mean, and this was a guy I was sort of like partnered with doing a lot of experimental music stuff. And we had no political agenda whatsoever for doing it in the first place. Um, but the only agenda we had was, I wonder if we just upload these to this to a file sharing network and not do anything else if somebody will be stupid enough to run with it and actually right broadcast it or i mean we had no idea at all that mainstream media would pick up on it like we thought at most a internet website would post it and be like is this real or something you know yeah and then he would be like oh it was, you know he i don't even know what his intentions were as far as linking that <laughs> viral video campaign with his um oh, political the, campaign it's the that's the guy with no head running for office. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was just a very harebrained idea in the first place, and we had only used it one other time before. When I say used it, we put the video online right after the Nick Berg beheading video happened, and that was another component to it. Is we had watched the Nick Berg beheading video because um, the media was playing it nonstop, like you yeah. could see it, you know, uh, on most of the media channels, but we were you know and this might sound you know insensitive or whatever but we we were actually really surprised at how low quality the video looked and right. how the media was making all these assertions about it and and making all these claims about it but yet the video looked like if someone wanted to fake a video of yeah. that it could have might as well have been fake right. I'm not saying the Nick Burt video was fake i mean right I think it's probably a real video, but the but the idea was that you could easily fake something yeah. like that, you know, and and the less you show, that people would actually, you know, potentially fall for it. And that's actually, you know, with the uh, Osama bin Laden videos, there are some yeah. videos where you can plainly see that this obviously is not even Osama bin Laden, but it's uh, it's you know, paraded out there as the real deal and it yeah. could very easily be a hoax or 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 there'll be more nuanced uh manipulation where the video will have an audio track of him talking from a different period of time over a video with unsynced right. speech and for all you know that 
audio recording could have nothing to do with the video or the video could be from a completely different time or even the translations of those videos you know different media agencies have actually found that the, some of those translations were misleading in the american right, media yeah. and they were actually um during the key parts of the videos they would actually botch the translation to make it seem like he was admitting um uh guilt yeah. in the attacks mm -hmm. and just weird things like that so i mean and then this whole situation with abby you know that that blew up recently it reminded me completely of the the what the beheading hoax taught me originally right, yeah. which is that the mainstream media is much more interested in expediency and and just getting a story the fuck out there yeah, being as the soon first, as possible getting the ratings and riding the wave because even if they're not the first they want to be talking about the story the same time right. everybody else is otherwise the story is not wor worth anything to them almost like if you think about it as a commodity that has a very short shelf life yeah that sh that so they need to use it in that period of time and um it just and then the same type of hit pieces were were sort of developed about Abby they were developed about us and I remember how interesting it was that when the media picked it up so they picked it up at like four in the morning Pacific time right and what that means is that the like I don't know who originally picked it up but the wire services like Associated Press and Reuters picked it up as well around the same time. So that story already went out to thousands of different media organizations all over the world um, that this beheading was real. And by the time they retracted it at like 8, 9 in the morning, it was already too late. Yeah. Because the wire services in these papers all over the world and these you know TV stations are so reliant on the wire service to basically be completely trustworthy. So anything that these wire services send them, they'll just run it. But little did they know that the wire service actually wrote about a false event. I mean, the beheading yeah. didn't happen. All it, all AP or Reuters had to do was call Ben's house. He actually gives out his phone number and full name and address <laughs> in the video. Yeah. Nobody called them. First call he got was from was from an AP guy, like after the story had already gone out. Right. Which is amazing. It's like, wow, they already released this story. But an address like where? And he's like alive. Here in the Bay Area? Yeah. Like, like 15, I think it was actually 1510 Eddy Street. I can remember yeah. in my mind. He was like, I'm Benjamin Vanderford. And it just taught me so much about how ultimately, you know, we, we like to look at the media as this, you know, when I say we like to, I mean, right. people who have my, Abby and I's persuasion, political persuasion, as this monolithic entity that's controlling the flow of information yeah. and in a sense they they are doing that but but on the other hand they are also very fucking sloppy yeah and they'll just pop out a story because of the sensationalism because of the clicks because of the money because of the ad revenue you know just to get people you know people's eyes on it or eyes and ears and it's and, um it's that's just how the business works you know so uh what was the what was the response from i mean we we know the response from the media was obviously not not great once they figured out they fucked up yeah but they never well yeah i didn't i didn't finish my point from before really quickly they, mm -hmm. they they never admitted guilt they never admitted that we got fooled they made it they immediately turned on us and they started running stories about how we, what we did might actually be illegal Right, and they was just started running statements from the FBI saying, "Yeah, we're investigating these two guys and shit like that," and it turns out we never did anything illegal. 
the FBI didn't have anything to fucking say to us. They came to our house. They tried to, like, intimidate us with some weird, vague statements, but they had nothing. And um, I think it would that even that story was designed to send sort of like a chilling effect where Right. If you ever pull, if people ever want to pull a stunt like this, you're going to go to jail. Right. I mean, if you never followed up on that story as just a person reading a newspaper, you would think that we were already in jail. Right. Because it's just like we're under investigation for this potential crime. You know, they never said, oh, no, what they did was actually not illegal. I mean, the newspapers right. just, you know, leave this idea planted in your mind that you're, you know, these guys were criminals. And then it's the last you hear of it. So what you mentioned the FBI came to your house. What? <laughs> like what what did they what did they say to you what was their um like what justification did they have for being there aside from you know obviously just investigating but what were they what were they threatening you with well their justification was 911 bro terrorism of course they, they came to my house and they were just like i mean they literally this is how fucking stupid it was i mean as a, as incompetent as people want to make them out to be they somehow had my cell phone number already, and they were already at my house when they called my cell phone. They're like, where where are you? We're outside your house. And I was like, I'm like in, you know, on the fucking freeway on my way to San Francisco. So yeah. what? how long did this take? So you said it was, the story was picked up around 4 a.m. Yeah. They retracted it around 8 or 9 a.m. Yeah. So when, when did they show up? Um, They showed up uh, when I was in the car, like almost hitting the Bay Bridge at like, uh, say like 3 p.m. So that's pretty fast. It's pretty fast, and but it but the FBI agents who came and met me and interviewed me were, they just really seemed like fucking idiots. Like, I mean, I really do believe in a lot of ways the the incompetence theory of like that the U.S. government is truly like an incompetent, totally ineffective, like bureaucratic disaster is true. I mean, these guys were just ridiculously ignorant. They didn't know anything yeah. about file sharing networks. They didn't know anything about, you know, movie. I mean, they just didn't know fucking anything that I was like, all they asked me was, do you know anybody who's in, been involved in any terrorist acts? Did you do this as some kind of like, you know, thing working with anybody known terrorist? I mean, they just asked me like the dumbest questions you can imagine. And at the end of it, they just left me with this vague threat. The guy literally told me, you know, what you did wasn't illegal. But if word comes from the top, and I guess in that at that time it would have been John Ashcroft or something, right? You yeah. know, word comes from the top, um, everything nice in your life right now. You know, you have a nice girlfriend, you have a nice life. Um, it will be over in a heartbeat, and the pendulum could swing the other way, and wow. everything that you enjoy about your life will be over. Basically. Yeah, that's a pretty standard threat. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like such so vague that right. You know, as like a twenty-three-year-old guy i was just like what the fuck does that even mean like yeah and then i realized over time oh that means that the u.s government actually doesn't operate within the law that they actually just use their mafia like intimidation power to scare people away from doing shit <laughs> so what do you think that the intimidation in that instance or in general is to like what's what's the ultimate goal of that intimidation is it to prevent people from from uh, thinking outside of this little box or uh, like what? I mean, I think in that case, it was just these guys were so dumb that I think it was more on the level of uh, of like the way a cop would tell you something like that. You know, like if you ever fucking right, yeah. do this again, 
But I do think there was an overall... It, I guess it went a little bit further than that for me because they said when the word comes from the top. And it actually made me think, well, what does that mean? Like, I mean, because, you know, you could think of local law enforcement being, you know, sort of like slapdash, more Wild West about their antics. But right. when I actually got to thinking, well, the, the U.S. government is actually just as, could be just as corrupt or just as, I guess, blunt uh-huh. about those kind of threats i was just I, it took it made me surprised a little bit i guess maybe i was naive at the time you know i was never even the kind of kid that would get in trouble with like lawn you know like cops or anything like as a teenager so kind of my first like real run-in with being interrogated by any law enforcement was it uh, the last um yeah. <laughs> yeah but uh but you know i'm i'm willing to you know Bring it on, dude. <laughs> so do you, on. have you seen any sort of lingering effect of that? Do you feel like now because you've put yourself out there in that respect, even though you know it wasn't necessarily intentionally put out there like that, do you think that um, you're being watched closely because of these things? Or did it have any lasting impact, do you think? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm a... I'm a I'm a pot smoker, so as the um, illegal drugs. You know, what are you talking? I mean, about? I'm already paranoid when I see a cop, even when I'm not stoned. Right, right. So, um, of course. I mean, I didn't even know. I mean, the NSA scandal, the whole Edward Snowden thing, blew up like two years ago. Yeah, or so I remember even more like a year ago now. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know the inner workings of the NSA. I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't really imagine how they would be spying on me before i guess what my takeaway from it was that the u.s government does not operate within the law when you are actually a threat to their power a significant threat and i didn't i'm not saying what we did with the beheading hoax video was necessarily a threat to their power because right. we were fucking you know, mostly ignorant kids well, it's a the threat time. to their power in the sense that someone can hijack their narrative that's that's all and that's all that it was essentially and i think that that and that went far enough where they sort of wanted to put me in check with this um you know we went too far basically um i don't even remember where i was going with that <laughs> point but uh, well what do you um in terms of the newer stuff that you're doing which is much more overtly political than you know the beheading hoax yeah have you seen any backlash from that? I mean, it, backlash from law enforcement or just just in, in terms of of <laughs> putting this stuff out there for the to the world? Yeah. Um, has have has there been any negative consequences because you're putting that out there? Um, not. To... I mean, aside. I mean, I guess you know, aside from, I guess what what is happening to Abby currently with you know, hit pieces and smear campaigns going on could be considered that. Could be. Um, excuse me. <laughs> uh, I guess no, in the sense that there hasn't been any, like, public outrage or anything. I mean, the, the, the work that I've done with Abby, you know, is pretty, still pretty low-key. It's pretty obscure compared to breaking the set, which has very much eclipsed what the, even the work that I've done with her, which is the podcast. So I don't think it's really gotten enough exposure to really be sort of um, raked over the coals yet, if okay. that's what you're implying. <laughs> right. So 
I mean, you know, and I wanted to get more exposure and like I'm perfectly, you know, willing to take whatever criticism about it. I'd say the most criticism that American Anthrax got when it came out was there was a few factual errors in the sort of the bumper texts in the movie. Right. And uh, the guy just politely pointed it out. <laughs> um, you know, I was like, oh, you're right. You know, that was a, a misstatement. Um, I agreed to, you know, annotate it and, and fix it. And then he would just kind of like poo-pooed the whole movie because of uh, of one factual error. And I was kind of bummed out by it because he actually seemed like he'd be interested in it. But, you know, it's it's a learning experience when you put something like that out, especially if you're trying to appeal to a broader audience and not just like a conspiracy crowd right. or something yeah. like that. You need it to be factually kind of pretty much airtight, you know. It needs to be exactly right yeah you know the, the names the dates everything needs to be right and uh you know that's something that you know as i if i make more films or as i do this i'm just gonna just be more thorough in my my content delivery yeah but well, uh, but on the open, other oh. you open yourself up to you know ad hominem attacks and yeah. if you get even the tiniest thing wrong then that can be a reason to dismiss the entire thing totally and that and luckily that i don't think it's gotten enough exposure to to really do that to it yet but i do think that for me what i've noticed since i've done especially american anthrax uh it makes me paranoid to just have something like that out there with your name on it or yeah or what? yeah with my name on it and sometimes i go back and forth on this in my own mind if it's narcissistic you know a narcissistic delusion or, or sort of the inherent dilemma of doing some sort of investigative report of something that you perceive already to be a scary thing, you know. Yeah. And in the case of American Anthrax, the assertion that I'm making without actually saying it is that the FBI tried to pin the attacks on someone who was actually innocent because the attacks can be traced directly back to the White House itself. So I guess there is sort of, sort of an inherent paranoia and fear that comes in with, you know, it's hard to, you know, and I like to think that I can be as fearless as my sister and, and sort of, you know, power through these things. But there's a certain point where it's almost like, you know, um, if this stuff is really true, then yeah. you could be fucking with some of like the most intense right. criminals out there, essentially. And that's sort of the part that, you know, gets me paranoid when I think about that aspect. Of it. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the world that that you kind of operate in right now is what's referred to as the alternative uh, media, I guess you would say. Yeah. Which is heavily based on <coughs> quote unquote conspir conspiracy theories, which well, is a way of dismissing. Uh, go yeah, ahead, I was gonna say it depends on what. If you mean the alternative media movement like Alex Jones and and that kind of stuff, you're not talking about just like indie well, publications in general. I think you know even even indie publications to a certain extent they they tap into this existing world of conspiracy theories because it's a market for one mm -hmm. that isn't being tapped. You know, and yeah, um, anytime that that's the case, someone is going to find a way to make money off of it yeah um, but uh do you think that uh that it's a 
a detriment to have this uh, entire industry dedicated to the alternative media where it is so heavily tied into these accusations and sometimes baseless theories. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, is it? You mean like, does it poison the well? Yeah, exactly. Like, credibility? like, of course. How do you how do you deal with things like that, where you're dealing with a lot of the same subject material as, say, Alex Jones? That's or, a very good point. Yeah, like, no, it's it's extremely challenging because you have to you basically have to walk a line where you're not afraid to touch these subjects that might have already been poisoned or you know corrupted yeah. or whatever by people who are not credible, like something like nine eleven. You know, it's the political third rail that no one wants to touch who's quote-unquote credible right but with something like that it's like you know for media roots especially it's like you can't um you have to touch it but you have to know which part you know how to touch it basically um and there's some work we've done on media roots um about 9-11 that is more speculative based um and we make that openly known like as we're talking about it we're we right. make it known that we are speculating right now this is not a fact that we're saying um but and i think that's how you can do it and and that's and and it's actually something that i don't think very many other people besides us are actually doing where we we've done like several episodes of media roots radio where we actually teach people who are unfamiliar with conspiracy theory the world of conspiracy yeah. theories to teach them which how to differentiate between bad and good conspiracies like credible ones and garbage ones right for instance um and that's something that i think more people need to be making sort of like instruction guides out there because the word conspiracy theory is is super divisive in and of itself it's almost become a meaningless term because yeah. a conspiracy literally on its face just means multiple people colluding together right on some sort of secret plan, which happens every day, all the time, know, everywhere, yeah, in I offices, mean, you know, I mean, not even for big companies, just employees doing things behind the boss's back, and you know, I mean, it's it's a silly. Yeah. My favorite quote. Term. My favorite quote about that is from Catherine Austin Fitz, when she said, "If you're not in a conspiracy, you need to get in one. Conspiracies are real. Like this is this is what people do to protect themselves. This is how the game works. Yeah, you conspire with other people to get ahead." You know, in a way, we are conspiring together now to, you know, put media out there. It's uh, almost as useless as the term terrorism because it can be defined so many different ways. And it's such a general term yeah. overall that I think it almost becomes useless to the dialogue. Like there's this guy that Abby interviewed on Breaking the Set named Lance D. Haven Smith. Um, who wrote a book called, I think it's called Conspiracy Theory in America. Mm -hmm. And he's basically... Uh, trying to redefine, differentiate between garbage conspiracy theories and valid conspiracy theories, and then also redefine what what the term conspiracy theory is actually describing when it's describing valid conspiracy theories. So, for instance, the JFK assassination, yeah, where there's ample evidence that there were CIA um, people involved in grooming Oswald, and and that Jack Ruby was connected to the CIA and FBI. Right, and that the, you know the David Ferry and Clay Sh that Clay Shaw, the guy who you know paid David Ferry and, and Oswald, might actually was actually a CIA agent and things like that. There's ample evidence to suggest that. Right. However, calling it a conspiracy theory, 
when we already know those are facts you right. know, that that these people were CIA and stuff like that is almost an inappropriate term at that point. It, it and this guy in this book, um, Conspiracy Theory in America, um, it's by Lance Haven Smith. I think I already said that. Uh, it, he he tries to redefine what that actually is as a state crime against democracy. Hmm. So the state apparatus itself, whether it be a small group inside the state apparatus or the actual top of the state apparatus, you know, for instance, like something like planned from within the White House, like the Watergate burglaries. Right. Yeah. That's planned from the very top of the state apparatus or something more like the JFK assassination, which may, you know, would seem to have been hatched in the lower CIA. echelons of the state apparatus. State crimes against democracy, and you could there's even an acronym he comes up for in the book, SCADS. <laughs> Um, seems to be a, a much more applicable term for these things um, because they're designed to prevent the democratic process, assassinating a U.S. president, right. um, sending anthrax to U.S. senators and media outlets, you know, things like that. A lot, in, in a way, it's a lot of the what we've been talking about already about it's a way to hijack the narrative. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, say and define what reality is for people which Absolutely. i think is one of the most dangerous things well the history and the lance haven smith also writes this that sort of the forward to his whole thesis is that the term conspiracy theory actually appeared 60 times more frequently in media publications following the warren commission than previously in lexis lexis nexus media searches so and then there's also an internal CIA document to suggest methodology in which to smear using the media JFK right. conspiracy theorists. And they say in this CIA document that the term conspiracy theory in and of itself is actually a helpful way to create sort of a divide right. where you have the difference between, the, oh, these crazy kooks and then you have the normal rational people. Yeah. Where most of the people who probably questioned the event in the first place were normal rational people who are just like, wait a second, this is this does, doesn't fucking make right. sense, you know? Well, a lot of people, a lot of people think that these kind of things sound very far fetched. Yeah. But it's you can prove that these things happen. Um, yeah. What was to a certain extent? Well, yeah. what was what was with um, where the CIA would send people to um, radical groups to sort of disenfranchise people? Oh, CoIntelPro. Pro, yeah. yeah. I mean, the this is doc Panthers. this is documented. Like, yeah. you can read their own documents about these things. It's oh, yeah. verifiable that this actually happened. I mean, they apparently wanted to destroy the hippie movement so bad that they, um, you know, it's it's almost unknowable how many CoIntelPro agents were sort of flooded into the hippie movement itself. Um, yeah. You know, and not uh, to mention uh, radical movements like the Black Panthers over in Oakland, stuff yeah. like that. And then the um, and then sort of the influx of hard drugs into the hippie movement from the Vietnam War, yeah. which is a whole other can of worms about you know the CIA importing and, and helping bring the flow of heroin to the United States. Right. So there's I mean there's so many, um, and then the CoinTelPro thing is a can take you in completely new directions with this new NSA intercept story by Glenn oh, Greenwald yeah. about the um, JTRIG, GHCQ uh, internet trolling. Right. Where they specifically have techniques laid out in these charts on how to divide and fracture the, the sort of personality types and the, and the, and the um, 
you know, people on message boards make allies with each other. They form these little cliques. Right, yeah. Basically how to destroy those cliques and how to, like, break them apart and all this shit. Um, and then and they write about all this stuff. I mean, yeah. And, and that's Cointelpro for the, you know, for the Facebook era, basically. Yeah. Um, Do you feel like you have access to a, a group of people who may not already think like you, or are you, or are you just kind of talking to the same people all the time with your political commentary? Um, I mean, I definitely try to like challenge others and, and let other, you know, political figures challenge me often. Uh, I mean, going to visit Abby in, in DC was, was interesting because, you know, you would think a lot of the people working for RT, you know, from an outsider perspective might all have the same, um, political philosophy, but I mean, totally diff on different pages, you know, like, like Abby has friends that are, you know, running for city council under the Green Party. She has um, a, a friend who um, uh, works for uh, Venezuelan PR, like to help like promote their government and right. things like that. Um, she j just knows so many different people in DC that have all these like crazy, crazily varied um, political perspectives. That I, that's like part of what I think is like at least I don't know which which inspires me about what Abby does and kind of like keeps me like involved in, in this shit is just like you know taking one piece from you know the Green Party movement or you know some, some pieces from libertarianism and, and just sort of like mashing up different shit and you know finding what, what makes the most sense sort of like not thinking about it as these different ideologies or paradigms that um you know that are necessarily in conflict with each other so like, how how concerned are you with like growing an audience or like expanding your audience i mean i guess for me personally i don't really it's not i guess it's not a concern of mine um but for someone like abby who's like growing an audience a bigger audience every day um i think that i don't know i mean i, I think that what she's doing in a in a in a way is actually very mass appealing because she's not speaking to like an individual specific you know political persuasion and i think you know it's almost like coming from like an angle of like pure populism in a sense where it's sort of always rallying against the system no matter what the system is whether it be the u.s government whether it be the russian government right um any any type of military aggression i mean so it's something I think that just normal people can relate to who aren't, aren't even really political, you know, in, in you know, to, to a certain degree. I mean, there's definitely things she talks about that are like very niche, you know, po political subjects. But yeah, in some in some respect, but I but I mean, I think one of the things that is uh, actually very inspiring about what what Abby does and the way she does it is that she is able to take these uh, things from the that are generally obscure and present them in a way to a wide audience where they don't have they don't really have the choice but to accept that okay someone is someone is putting this out here they're giving me the evidence i kind of have to look at this yeah you know if i'm looking at the show i gotta take this seriously because you know it's it's not just parroting back a press release like i'm used to it's actually showing me okay well here you can go and check on this for yourself yeah and and I think what also works works for her format is like, 
you know, she, she's super strong and like, um, you know, confident and, and like she knocks it out of the park and uh, on some of these segments and just like, you know, people, you know, maybe if they watch her out of context, they might even see what she's doing as some sort of like, you know, preaching, you know, you need to be this way kind of thing, or you need to think this way. But then like, you know, if you watch her whole show, like she'll do segments about how, um, you know, she doesn't live what she preaches sometimes, you know, like there's, there's not, you, you can't, you can't, you don't have to be all in to make a difference in this fight, basically. And I think that that's also part of which, what, what's embedded in her message is like, you, as imperfect as everybody is and, and whatever activism they do, you know, or even if you get defeated and think that you're completely insignificant, that there's like, I mean, you, every little bit does something, right. you know? It's, I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, the first step is obviously for, people to acknowledge that they benefit from a system that uh, that oppresses others and that the only reason that they are able to have what they have is at the expense of other people, um, which is an uncomfortable reality, but uh, it's, it's a reality that is necessary to be able to accept these, these concepts because what, what I... What I see happening most often is people, they they have such cognitive dissonance about these issues that they just simply can't, they can't confront them. They can't address them. As soon as it starts to enter into their mind and it's conflicting so much with their established worldview, the only response that they have, well, they have two responses. They can either accept it and and look into it more deeply or just completely shut down and say, I can't deal with that. Yeah. And I, I get this response a lot when I even bring up anything about nine 11. Yeah. I knew um, you were going to talk about 9/11 <laughs> when you were saying that, but, you didn't. but I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's true. I mean, I talk to, I talk to people about the craziest things. Yeah. But the second that I start to talk about anything revolving nine 11, it's, it's not even that they don't believe it. It's that they go, I can't, I can't think about that. I can't think about that. So how do we, how do we address that aspect of, of our culture? And maybe it's human nature, but yeah. how do we, how do we help people get past that? It's that, I mean, that is, man, yeah, I don't know how to get past that specific reaction. Yeah. I mean, in a way, just admitting that you can't handle it and can't deal with it is an honest, like, vulnerable reaction, you know? Like, I find what's mo- mo- more difficult than that even is is when you try to explain it to people and the questions they ask revolve around just explaining, you know, a, B, C, D, right. E, F, G, like, the whole... Or justification. Yeah. Like they expect you to be able to to say yeah to to have solved the entire case yeah like i i describe it as like they want you to close the circle for them it's like if you give right somebody a, a few f- pieces of information i think that i mean it is such a disturbing thought to imagine that you know that our government has used 9-11 as this pretext for so many things but yet maybe they have completely lied to us about what actually happened i mean yeah. Even that's just a really disturbing thought. But then when you start going into the territory of suggesting that they 
people inside the government might have actually been in on it or maybe they wanted it to happen then i think it i mean it is a really uncomfortable feeling to feel that you know yeah it it's it takes away in large part the whole safety net that we feel inherently living in this country you know with all the privilege that we have here and and the you know the wealth and the um, you know, the civil rights, which are, you know, slowly eroding. Right. But the civil rights that we still have for now, um, I think it should, it is cognitive dissonance um, that makes it really hard for people to even discuss it. But I guess for me, as I try to dissuade people away from, like, if somebody's like, well, what are you saying? Are you saying Bush right, you know, did yeah. it? Or are you saying that, um, you know, uh, that someone inside the government put the explosives in the buildings or, or those kind of things. I don't think, I guess for me, I just don't, I try not to go there yeah. um, in discussions anymore. Cause it's just like, nobody knows. Yeah. It's and almost it's like, like trying to, it's like, it's the classic thing where you, you go back to like JFK and you're like, well, how many shooters were there? Where were they shooting from when you're really missing the point, which is why, Yeah. why did it happen? Why did they do it? I mean, why? Who wanted John F. Kennedy killed, and why? Yeah, well, why would they have needed nine eleven? You know, why did they? What would? Who benefited the most? What was to gain? Right. Um, those are the important questions that I think get missed, and I think, you know, more so-called nine eleven truthers, which is just such a divisive, silly term at this point. I mean, but you know, if you want to describe people who try to continue to research what happened on nine eleven as truthers. Um, I think more truthers need to look into those aspects of it, you know, and find yeah. a wired geopolitical context for it all. Because it seems like, you know, all even as good as a lot of these independent journalists are, they're still one step behind. As right. Karl Rove uh, was quoted as saying that they, you know, they create reality. We're still one step behind their, yeah, their creation of reality. And and here we are, almost at uh, you know this standoff between russia and the united states like another cold war and it feels like they just did it again you know right like the neoconservatives got their their wish now do you think it's possible um i mean i personally i i have uh looked a lot at 9-11 yeah. uh, for myself um and i don't know what happened I don't think anyone knows what happened. Well, obviously some people know what happened, but the average person, it's nearly impossible for them to know what happened. Of course. Because there's such a sea of of half facts, misinformation, and just, it's all muddy. Yeah. So, ultimately the question is, this is not cut and dry. Are we happy with the fact that, like, this is not cut and dry? Is this, we're just going to let this not be cut and dry? Uh, or are we going to say that we this is something that we don't know, but we need to look into it? Yeah. And I think that's, in a lot of, way, in a lot of ways, the mainstream system, which we keep using this term, but uh, I think you know, it would be important for us to stop for a second and, and define what that actually means mm -hmm. in terms of, of media, but also just cultural and identity in general yeah that nationalism nationalism and what it means 
what it means to be human as defined by the system that yeah. we've created for ourselves uh, yeah. and understanding that all of these political uh, structures are man-made. We made them up mm-hmm. and acknowledging that they serve a purpose. So when we when we talk about mainstream media or we talk about mainstream ideology or whatever, yeah, I think we need to define what that actually means. And we have this sort of collective consciousness that is established by all types of media and our acceptance of uh-huh. a narrative that we choose to define as reality and things that we choose to omit in order for that narrative to make sense to us. But let's talk about some of the ways that these things uh, trickle down through our culture. How is mainstream ideology per- uh, perpetuated? I mean, I think it's 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 almost like a symptom of capitalism. If you're talking about like the overall overarching idea of like what's mainstream okay you mean like beyond political like culturally yeah musical because it's not everything purely political I yeah mean, it's... i think that it's i mean it seems to be like you know just for example like record companies um you know film companies um film studios they have to as, as their market research gets more fine-tuned and as they're able to judge their audiences more and as they're able to, um, you know, uh, do analytics for the ticket sales better and all that kind of stuff, it's it's almost like an inevitable byproduct of the idea of reaching the, the bottom line every quarter. I mean, you have to right. make profit, and the goal is to make more profit. So I think, you know, initially when the when you know things were more experimental i guess you could say like back you know during the advent of television and film and recorded music um it was i just don't think corporations were as uh good at making money in that sense okay you know they didn't have it down to a science (laughs) right but i mean that's that's just one angle of trying to, to describe it i mean well, let's it, let's give an example. Let's say, yeah. let's say you are a mainstream uh, record label. Let's say this is a world where mainstream record labels are still relevant, uh-huh. which is questionable. But let's say you are out to make the most money off of a a pop star that you possibly can. You're going to study what people resonate with. Uh, you're going to do market tests and you're going to see how people respond to certain things and mm-hmm. if it turns off a large section of the audience then that's going to be omitted and so eventually what you what you are left with is this sort of vague representation of what existed before with all of the things that are inconvenient in terms of the money making process omitted or fall into the wayside mm-hmm. And then this is what is put forth as truth. And acknowledging that that we are all buying into this collective like representation of truth that omits anything inconvenient is completely twisting the reality of it. I mean, and it's 
I don't necessarily, to me, it's not an intentional thing. It's like the byproduct of the system. These people aren't evil per se. Yeah. They're not out to harm <laughs> people. They're just, they're doing what they're programmed to do and what the, the confines of our, of what we define as reality tells them they're supposed to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but the natural byproduct of doing this is, uh, you're twisting what is real. Yeah. And on the last podcast, I don't know if you were here at that time, I, I brought up the phrase that I use quite frequently about white people, quote unquote, is that white people destroy everything that they love simply by loving it. And this is like, so, you know, simply by doing like, and engaging with, with that thing as you mm -hmm. feel you're supposed to, you're destroying it. Yeah. And I think this is a lot of thing. This is something that people don't really understand is that. It's like the Schrodinger's cat principle for for, for white people. What is the Schrodinger's cat It's just cat like principle? the observer affects like the. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, simply by, by interacting with yeah. something, you're changing it, which is what, you know, the principle is, is uh -huh. about. And acknowledging that that is a real thing which I think is something that we've known for quite some time, like scientifically, mm -hmm. we've known it, but it hasn't trickled into the culture that that this is what really happens. Uh, I don't really know where I was going with that. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to frame the idea of these things that are often dismissed as conspiracy theories or, you know, taboo subjects or lunatic fringe or however you choose to define it but put it in terms of what is actually real in our in our world and we're accepting these things that are are pretty patently unreal we know that to an to a certain extent uh politics is theater i mean we know that it's mm -hmm. it's happening right in front of us and we see it we know it but we don't equate it with with the fact that what we're seeing is not real you know we still think of it as real so i think it's it's important for us to to start breaking that down really and it i think it's almost impossible if you don't smoke weed i mean i don't know how, <laughs> how you guys feel about it but i think it's it's literally it's something that you your mind can only go there yeah if you're pulling yourself out of this this construct that we call reality yeah definitely i mean you have to already kind of be i was going to say you don't have to be an expert in in dissecting propaganda or dissecting the the sort of mainstream coding for things as long as you're disconnected from it somehow you know like if you don't watch tv if you don't listen to radio um but i mean that's not probably not likely you know but no it's um it's it's the dilemma you know it's like the it's again another you know quantum physics uh <laughs> idea um that you know being with inside the system makes it almost impossible to be able to truly see it for what it is you know even as distances i like to think that i am from the mainstream pole that you're talking about and the sort of the infection um I mean, I'm probably being misled in, uh, by some form of 
agitation propaganda purposely planted in there by some kind of ad agency, you know, for something yeah. that don't even realize. And that's, to me, sort of the weird part is that a lot of this stuff is like scientifically honed, like even just marketing stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's just probably just weird shit, you know, going in the, in the noise of our minds all the time that just sort of kind of fucks us up inside. I think it, it is actually relevant to bring up the concept of marketing because I think a lot of a lot of this is actually based on the same principles of marketing because when you're marketing you're you're essentially selling people shit mm -hmm. and when you are a government or any kind of entity that wishes to uh, create some sort of normalcy something that can be controlled and uh, you can create a some sort of stable system on top of it because it's not constantly fluctuating. Um, fuck, I just lost my train. <laughs> um, what was I talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I think we're smoking a little too much weed here. <laughs> but uh, it's how we roll on the yeah. Slims podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I guess the point that I'm that I'm ultimately trying to get across to people is is that all these things that we think of as crazy when you when you're able to approach them from a from a different mindset and a different uh, understanding of reality <laughs> uh -huh. then they don't seem crazy they seem completely logical and everything else seems crazy and there's also and also I think there needs to be a an additional statement tacked onto that where you there's definitely a scale in which these crazy there are more credible so-called crazy theories and on a scale to less credible right, ones yeah. i mean you know there's the david ikes and there's the david wilcoxes and then there's yeah. the you know the alex joneses or somewhere around the middle um you know i mean People even call Glenn Greenwald a conspiracy theorist, you know, the way that really? he writes. Yeah. I mean, he has kind of a, a really intense style sometimes where he's, right. you know, he's connecting a lot of dots that are totally logical, but, you know, conservative writers are just like, yeah. you know, use that label against him. So, um, people, it's just become a, a an all and all out ad hominem way to attack people, basically. Well, I'm curious to know, what do you, what do you think about all this, Donnell? Like, are you, um, are you someone that pays attention to things like this? Are you, are you naturally tuned into this world or is this weird for you? Um, you know, I, I kind of became apathetic at one point. Um, not in this conversation, but like in the whole, <laughs> that's okay if you did though. <laughs> no, no, no. But like, just like politics in general. I remember yeah. when I was in college, I was so excited about things like when I was finding truth and hearing about, um, like other theories around 9-11 and. And I thought, oh, wow, like the world could change and people could wake up. And then that hope died in me pretty quickly mm. and was followed by apathy. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> I, I don't, which is why I was asking about growing your market and, and talking yeah. to people who may already be tooting that same horn. And it's like, I don't, I don't know that people who, like, I feel like there's a, a, a lot of people who will buy into it and a few people who won't. And that probably isn't going to change. And so while I, I do like, follow current events and what's going on I, yeah. I feel kind of powerless and i think mm. like whatever our government has decided is going to happen is going to happen and 
like there's not a whole lot I can do or any other like smart, well-informed people can do to fix it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's the, I mean, it's definitely understandable to, yeah. to feel that way. I, I really liked what Glenn Greenwald said. Uh, are you familiar with Glenn Greenwald? No. Um, He's an excellent writer. He yeah. just started uh, his own publication with, uh, who, what tech company was the guy from? Um, Pierre Omidyar, uh, PayPal billionaire. PayPal, yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, the Intercept, which yeah. so far, so, so good. I mean. And, yeah, I mean, I was just, uh, mentioned him because he, he did a, uh, Glenn Greenwald did a Vice magazine interview a couple months ago in the middle of all this Edward Snowden, um, NSA leak stuff. And he, he sort of, talked about how two people in their 20s, Edward Snowden and Bradley Manning, individually caused immense changes in the way that not only the public views the government, but the way the government, you know, could operate in the future. Like there might actually be fundamental changes that might have to take place because of what they leaked. Um, and if one person individually can make that kind of impact um it should sort of i think it should be almost like a signifier to others that you know that this is like he described it as the antidote to defeatism where right. two individuals you know pretty much kick the fucking government's ass and and you know and the edward snowden leak stories are still going a year later so yeah we have no idea how much longer those will be going and and even someone like Diane Feinstein, who is normally like a total hawk, you know, she's practically a neocon at this point, is now calling for, you know, an investigation to like take place at the NSA because a story they leaked, um, I think it was yesterday, was basically that the NSA is spying on the congressional inquiry into the NSA that she happens to be on, you know. So... I mean, it's just, it's sending shockwaves still every day. Like, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to feel feel like there is no way to, to repair this yeah. or, you know, even a, begin to approach a way to repair it. Um, because, I mean, really, it, it is incredibly difficult if we really want to break it down what would need to take place for a sort of widespread cultural awakening to happen mm -hmm. Yeah, um, is, I mean, that everything would have to change about our lives. And, you know, that's almost an impossible task. But at the same time, I think what we were talking about earlier, and I think maybe where I was going on my uh, stone tangent, was that um, part of the first step is acknowledging the real reality and not this, you know, glossy construct that we buy into because it makes it makes us feel okay that we're out there, you know, mm -hmm. buying all this shit and throwing it away and we're not paying attention to the fact that like some 5-year-old in India is then digging up our garbage and becoming poisoned by all the all the chemicals that they're touching as a byproduct of that and ad addressing that we don't see reality properly i think is the first step and once you kind of get there i think other the other things follow naturally 
And um, I knew a guy once who, uh, he was a weird guy. He liked to, <laughs> obviously, he liked to smoke crack with prostitutes. Uh -huh. He would hire prostitutes in the tenderloin uh, just to be able to sit in a hotel room with, with them and smoke crack. And here... But he wouldn't have sex with them? No, he wouldn't have sex with them. He would oh, just... Wow. Listen, you know, he would smoke crack with them and they would talk. Like he would give them crack? Too? Yeah, he would give them crack wow. and smoke it himself. Very generous. And, <laughs> indeed. And You don't share your crack? <laughs> no. It's no. kind of like I the, smoke it all to myself. It's kind of like anti-crack <laughs> sentiment. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the nature of crack and coke is that you want everyone else to go away so you can have it all. Exactly. But we're walking down Market Street one night and he turns to me and he says i don't think people should be allowed to vote unless they've done ketamine <laughs> and i said what <laughs> and then he went on to explain it and it sounds perfectly rational yeah he says i don't think you should have the power to determine anything about someone else's life until you know what it feels like to die <laughs> And coming from, you know, this guy, at first I, you know, I, I scoffed. And then as we continued walking, I'm like, that's the most fucking profound thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, we are out here making all these decisions that don't have any effect on us. We don't see the result. We don't feel the impact. And in a lot of ways, you can relate this to, you know, the the bursting of the housing bubble and, and uh what happened on Wall Street with people doing all these things that benefit them mm -hmm. that they don't even see the byproduct of. They have it, it doesn't even touch them. It, they don't even hear about it. And that's what makes it okay for them to do it. So, uh, I mean, do you think we could ever get to a world where this, this kind of thing would be even possible? Where we can we can allow ourselves to to be open to these kind of alternative views of reality i mean I know it, that's a deep question no i mean <laughs> i think i think that it's already happening i mean i i i i'm i remain very optimistic still i try not to look too far into the future about like how you know, if we're all going to become enlightened individuals that'll, you know, be able to see reality as it is. I, I think that's still very far away yeah. if this evolution keeps happening. But I do see an evolution of people, more people, um, having access to more information, you know, fundamentally because of the internet, but also choosing to <clears throat> challenge their own views and actually expand their own consciousnesses. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, DMT is almost like, a household term now. I mean, I don't want to yeah. exaggerate, but or um, ayahuasca. Yeah, know, I mean, which... there's fucking yupsters and yuppies, and um, you know, college professors, and just you know, people all over the Bay Area that have been doing ayahuasca at these little seminars. So, I think that it's just that alone is to me a really positive development. Or even, you know, the uh, there's another side of it as well in the Bay Area. I mean, like the sexual culture in the Bay Area. I think is just a microcosm of how this, you know, the sexual consciousness is expanding. And I think that that is another, 
a whole other side to it that sort of shows me that things are people are becoming more open-minded well what do, what do you mean by that like more people becoming accepting of things like polyamory and these yeah kind of concepts? i mean that's just one example yeah or like that there's even websites like fet life you know like, yeah. or um or like XTube, where like it's just thousands of people every day uploading amateur porn, you know? Right. I mean, things like that, I think, have taken human sexuality to a, a different level that basically makes the sexual revolution in the 60s like seem almost like childlike in comparison. I mean, it's really, I, I think, and a lot of people underestimate like the cultural leap that we've made just in that area. Yeah. So I think that, <clears throat> I don't know, I mean, and even politically, like, look at something like the fucking Intercept, you know, there's people, a lot, a lot of people trying to criticize Glenn Greenwald for his, you know, Twitter, Twittering, Twitter fighting, and, yeah. you know, he's he gets a little bit vindictive when he goes after people, but, I mean, fucking the Intercept is amazing. I mean, just the fact that that's even out there now, yeah. and he has so much public attention on him. Um, these are all really positive developments, I think, that will just inevitably lead to a higher level of human consciousness. You know, just in little bits here and there. But I don't know. That's my thought hmm. on the whole thing. Well, how much do you think, um, when we talk about conspiracy theories and things like that, Yeah. Um, I think immediately a lot of people think about um, uh, like that there's this sinister, uh, Illuminati group out there with, mm. you know, that wear robes and they, order. yeah, they do all these mm, nefarious things and they stroke their mustaches and whatnot. Yeah. Um, how much do you think, but I mean, let's be real that there, that does exist to a certain extent. I mean, that, just the sheer sheer nature of the way society works that happens rich people hang out together collude they, they yeah. collude yeah absolutely. and i think um uh, you had trevor Peglin on your podcast mm -hmm. and uh i think one of the most interesting things if people haven't read Tre uh, trevor Peglin stuff they definitely need to check it out he's a photographer he's primarily a visual artist yeah. that is approaching these things from a visual art standpoint that maybe he wouldn't be able to approach from, you know, a, a yeah. purely uh, journalistic or academic standpoint. And but he's, he's not interested in that side, I, I don't think, very much. Anyway. Yeah, and he's skating the line between, like, legal... I mean, he's almost doing things that would be, like, borderline illegal. You right. Know, like, taking pictures of government bases that no one's ever seen before or that right. you can't... Using you know, step these massive, and, like... Um, optical zooming totally. technology yeah. that sort of at the same time abstracts what you're seeing in a very artistic way yeah but also you know has this underlying context but to me one of the most uh most important things that he really brought to my understanding is how um the nature of secrecy works and how people colluding together actually works in the real world because it is a real thing, we know for sure that there are uh, secret government projects. I mean, we've learned about them after the fact to know that they were real. Mm -hmm. um, things like uh, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, existed for 
decades in complete secrecy before it was yeah. even reported yeah. on and then finally acknowledged many many decades later but this uh, this entire government agency operated in complete secrecy mm -hmm. and people have a hard time believing that this is possible but at the same time they know it's possible and people know that um you know the the top secret planes that were being developed back in the in the 70s and 80s we saw them after the fact we know that they were developing them in secret and it was kept secret mm -hmm. so it's i think it's also important for people to start to understand how this world works and the nature of doing something within a limited environment where only a few people can know about it and the bond that starts to happen between the few people that know about it because you can't just go home and talk to your best buddy about this the only people that you can talk about a huge aspect of your life are these other people that you work with so naturally you sort of start creating these little networks that that are operating in secret for a certain goal and everybody buys into it and it never gets it never gets leaked because this is this is that world you know mm -hmm. and it's it's an important thing for people to understand that a lot of the times when i hear people dismissing certain ideas their their rationale is well it would be impossible to keep something like that a secret mm -hmm. it's just too many people involved and somehow it would get out yeah well the whole idea of compartmentalization is kind of what you're describing that yeah that the that these groups of people you know if there is some sort of you know say like the accusations the sometimes often vague accusations that the cia um ships drugs into the country or has right. shipped cocaine or or Which put I crack on i don't think that's i don't think that's in question is it well but a lot of people will will fire back at that and say well that's a conspiracy theory it's like prove it well it's hard, very hard to actually prove from a straight line from from one point to the other just one dot to the other i guess yeah. i should say that the that the cia um you know got word from the top to actually send drugs into the united states but it's well, not you, very do you difficult think that they did get word from the top or do oh, you absolutely. think it was internal no no i don't think it was just an internal thing i think that the cia and the us government is directly involved in drug trafficking even to this day i think that's a, actually a big part of the reason that why we're in afghanistan right now yeah i mean it's no coincidence that heroin production spiked once we invaded and that yeah on top of that we are um you know originally it was said that we we're actually out there destroying poppy fields because heroin's illegal and right. we want to take away the taliban's money supply but then it turns out we were actually protecting um the poppy fields right and, you know, if we have such sophisticated predator drones and, and we're sitting, we're still occupying this country, the least we could do is try to, like, track the heroin yeah. uh, shipment routes and put You'd a stop think, to it, yeah. you know, if it's all fucking coming from this one country. But, I mean, that's just, it's just something that's almost like a disconnect. It's like we know when we see all these stories about Viet Vietnam, Laos, heroin, um, you know, yeah. importing, uh, U.S. military involvement in that. And that's sort of believable in retrospect, but then when you when you try to think about heroin, CIA, and Afghanistan, it almost seems unbelievable, you know, because we do live in a false reality now, where we are conditioned to believe that that's not a possibility. Yeah. You know, and unless we have proof that you know um, 
you know, that the U.S. military was given orders to, you know, ship heroin out or something like that, like in a document. Um, it's really hard to just convince the average person that that's even a possibility. It's like their brain can't even go to the realm of possibility. So, um, I don't know. I mean, but the but the term conspiracy theory, um, and and uh, Lance, um, God damn, you were just mentioning something really good that Lance DeHaven Smith also talked about in his book. No, I can't even. Well, what I'll 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 talk a little bit, and maybe you can get back to yeah. it. Is what I was initially um, saying about Trevor Paglin's work is the way he was able to document this and really frame it in a completely organic way mm -hmm. was that he he did a lot of research on the meaning of patches uh, of these secret government projects because mm -hmm. they would all every secret government project would still have a a patch that the people would wear that was you know uh outfitted with certain iconography that to the layman you know wouldn't necessarily even register you know certain patterns of stars or certain shapes of things that are certain, or certain gray aliens being arrested and thrown into jail so things like yeah. this um but you know once you start to break down the meaning of these things and you can sort of trace them back to what they represent mm -hmm. uh, one of the very interesting things that he did is that he went and took the logical leap of saying okay all these people work on this project for let's say 10 years in complete secrecy they form a very very tight bond after that 10 years is up and they're going on to other projects those are their best friends like that is their that's their network so even after the project has stopped they still communicate and one of the things that he found was that these people they'll just rent out like um what is it like uh, conference halls at a hotel in Reno and just have these like reunion get togethers of all people that worked on this project. And this wow. is where we come back like, you know, years later and we hang out and in this wow, close thing and we shoot the shit and, you know, what you've been up to lately and such and such natural life. Yeah. That, that is the result of secrecy. And like the, once you start to, trace those like the shadow cast by the object rather than looking at the object itself you can start to to really place it in 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 a realistic context of how this can actually occur in our society and you do you remember the term he came up with um i don't know if it's his term but he calls it vision collapse where it's like right where yeah. you actually see you know, you hear about this project, you read about it, you imagine in your mind that these people behind this certain project are these nefarious, yeah. you know, wraparound sunglasses wearing scary looking guys in suits. And then, you know, like you just said, he went to some reunion, saw yeah. them in a hotel conference room. And, and that's like an example of like, it's like the cognitive dissonance of, uh, it's like a form of cognitive dissonance almost. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting aspect to think about that um, one of the other projects that Trevor Paglin did, uh, he has a book called Terror Taxi that yeah. is all about the CIA's extraordinary rendition program where they would... One of the first books yeah, in any uh, exposés on, yeah, on that subject, too. Where, um, if people don't know what extraordinary rendition is, because it is an incredibly vague <laughs> term, 
extrajudicial killings. It's yeah. like as, just as right. silly as that. It's basically you're snatching people off the street and putting them in black sites, and no one ever sees them then again. Yeah, and trying and trying to trace the actual network that does this stuff. So one of the things he did was he, through research, was able to figure out where the CIA shell uh, airline companies were being based out of. Mm -hmm. And so he would go to that airport, sit in the parking lot with his long-range lenses, mm -hmm. and just watch the people as they got off. They're, they're, they're getting off work. They're clocking out, and they're going home. This is the reality of the situation yeah. that you can't hide. Yeah. You know, they they put their uniform away, they walk out, they walk back to their car, they drive home, and these are real people. And then they go back to work, and they're flying people in planes, unmarked planes, to black sites and making them disappear. And this is their job. But they're just normal people. And sort of placing the... the the reality of these these uh, nefarious, mysterious, secretive organizations. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think that's some of the most important work that can be done right now is really letting people know how how this stuff is possible and putting it in a yeah. context where they can integrate it into their own reality. And it's it in some ways it's almost more makes it more creepy of how seamlessly it's embedded into just everyday reality you know? that's true and it's um it it reminds me of uh i'm working on an article for this uh magazine out of taiwan called white fungus about uh the stasi in east germany mm -hmm. and how it was there was the general sense among the population in east germany um it's especially during like the 80s actually that there was a very high likelihood that your friend or neighbor or even your loved one could be right. a Stasi secret police. Could be a communist. Yeah. So there was um so there was this high level of paranoia, almost similar to how you would imagine like a full on surveillance state being where you knew everything you said in you know, in a room or, or privately was being recorded somewhere. Um it almost had the equivalent effect of that because you 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 weren't sure who you could trust and what you could say to, you know, somebody that you thought you knew. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know. I think that that's the Stasi to, to me resembles a lot of what's happening right now. Yeah. Um, and, and not just that aspect of it, but also like the self censorship, knowing what, knowing not just how to act, you know, but also like what to say, what not to say. Um, you know, at work, at home, you know, while working for a media organization, right? Um, yeah, and a politician. It's, it's interesting when you start to think about the fact that of self censorship, where you're not someone isn't telling you what to say, mm -hmm. but they've embedded you with morals that define what you can and can't say. Mm -hmm. So it's so deeply embedded in yourself that you don't see it as a control mechanism. Absolutely, yeah. And then, a, a lot of these things we uh, are defined by media, the media we, that we consume, mm -hmm. and by that, you know, that that's art, that's uh, news, that's music, that's television, that's journalism. All of this is is media, 
it's not necessarily true. Uh, but it's all these things that we put together that we, you know, start to create a construct of what is true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this whole situation with Abby that just blew up last week, um, for those who aren't familiar with what happened, my sister Abby went off script on her Russia Today uh, segment on last Monday um, and sort of spoke out against Russia's um, involvement in Ukraine, along with the United States involvement. Um, and what this whole, like, and this got in all these different media outlets. It was in, um, it was like on Fox News, it was on CNN. And you, it just perfectly illustrated how the media, and not just like the TV news media or the newspaper media, but the media as a whole, you know, even including shows like The View, they actually spread this sort of intentionally deceptive uh, propaganda. And it, those may, might sound like strong terms to use, but that's essentially what it is. Because the way that they used Abby's story about what she did was it was spun into this narrative of this Cold War style narrative where right. look at how bad Russia is. Even their reporters are going off script. Like they're really like it was kind of slanted in a way to basically slam Russia. It was right, a way to yeah. put us on an adversarial pivot with them. And then it, and then they used the media use it as an end to talk about Abby's um, whole station. You know, oh my God, can you believe that there's this Russian station operating in the United States that's right. spreading anti-American hatred and, and all this stuff? So it was fascinating to watch what Abby did be hijacked by all these other people in the media and try to spin it into this their own narrative and use it as like a really powerful propaganda tool. You know, and it might not seem that consequential but i mean a week long of those kind of propaganda points like or repeated over and over again i mean that has a pretty strong effect and they were even talking about it on the view i mean they had the other reporter that um resigned on the on the view and they were yeah, right. having like a roundtable discussion about it and stuff so it's it really is and then and then you know i'll even you know whatever yeah like Gren greenwald um wrote a story about Abby and he even got some of this. I mean, it was even distorted coming from him, you know, as much as I love yeah. his writings, um, knowing Abby and being on the inside of it as it was happening, I knew that some of the things he was writing were not necessarily on point and hundred yeah. percent correct. So it, it's just every piece of media that you ingest is slanted in some way. I mean, it, it's, and that's something that I inherently know, just digesting this shit on a daily basis and writing about it and talking about it with my sister. But when this type of stuff happens, it's like you're given this shocking reminder of just how bad it is. Yeah. You know, how false it is across the board, you know, to varying degrees. You know, you have Fox News and MSNBC and CNN that are very false, base level, dumbed down. But then you have, you know, bloggers and people like Glenn Greenwald who will try to use a story for his own narrative, you know. Essentially, yeah. the story about Abby that he wrote was almost, it was right on the heels of a story he'd just written about how, why working for Pierre Omidyar doesn't affect his journalism. Right. So it's kind of like, look, see, there's another independent journalism that has their own uh, editorial control, Right. Abby Martin. So it just, I don't know, it just kind of, 
makes you kind of just more cynical, I guess, to just realize how, you know. But I guess at the same time vindicated, thinking that my cynical views are not necessarily like, it's not because I'm depressed, <laughs> you know, not because I'm a depressed person. It's like, I get depressed because of how because of, <laughs> yeah. fucked up shit is, you know, whatever. I mean. Well, do you think um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna start to wrap this up a little bit? But as huh. as a as a bookend to this discussion, do you think it's possible for a media outlet, something let's say like Media Roots, mm-hmm. that is uh, a nonprofit that doesn't rely on this model of uh, selling stories essentially to generate income uh, which is essentially what all media is do you think it's possible in a capitalist system to for something like media roots to become as pervasive as something like cnn absolutely not however i do think that truth like honest truth telling, like hard hitting truth telling, and doesn't have to be sophisticated, you know, like the New Yorker or like yeah. um, the Economist, you know. And I'm sorry, I don't even want to compare those two publications because, you know, the New Yorker has a lot better shit in it than the Economist. But, you know, Harper's, you know, sometimes will do some pretty nice, solid, hard hitting reporting done in a very, um, you know, kind of NPR sort of way. And, but I think overall, what Media Roots does and what Abby does in Breaking the Set, sort of carrying on the tradition of Media Roots, is it's it speaks more. I don't. I mean, this sounds so generic to say, but it speaks more to like the human heart. I was like, you don't have to be a libertarian. You don't have to be like Green Party. You don't have to be a, a truther. You don't have to be, you know, even Republican or Democrat. It's just. And, you know, and Abby is a woman and she, when she gets up there on TV, like you could see that she is actually genuinely emoting her actual feelings and saying things that she believes. And I think that's something that it cuts through the need to even really have to heavily market something like that, because it's like, you just have to see her, her in action basically. And, you know, even our podcast, you know, like we you know, we say like a lot. People complain. We, you know, we sound like um, you know, stoners or whatever when we, we do our podcast. But like, that's, you know, that we're just talking. You know, we're not. Yeah. It's almost like we don't even think about it as like a performance with an audience. Yeah. Because that's just started as us just shooting the shit, and then we just record it. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to ask is. Um, <laughs> Not that she, not that she, not that she skirted the question. Or Sorry, man. <laughs> but Don't fuck up your question. So on on our previous episode, we talked a little bit about um, what what my motivations for doing a podcast like this is, mm-hmm. um, because the conversation was kind of veering into weird places, and the guests were like, "Well, this is this is kind of weird." Like, you know, I thought this wasn't. I thought this was like a a music podcast or something. Talking about the people that were here earlier? Yeah. We just met? Oh, cool. Okay. (laughs) 
but this is airing <laughs> on a different day. So yeah. we're going to pretend like it's oh, a totally oh, oh, yeah. different Oh, sorry, day. sorry. But <laughs> even though I'm wearing the same shirt. But um, <laughs> so basically what I was trying to explain was that there's there's the current system that we live under where it's it's sort of about extracting the value out of things at the expense of that thing. Um, and which is something that doesn't resonate with me at all. So to me, there it makes sense that as a music venue, Slims and the Music Hall and any venue benefits from the popularity of the artists that they're booking. Mm -hmm. So let's say we have like, you know, a thousand local bands in the Bay Area. If all of those 1,000 local bands had decent followings and people knew about them, that's good for us because then we can sell more tickets. Mm -hmm. And we're not, it, we're not doing it in an um, exploitive way. You know, we benefit from the awareness of these artists. So if we take it upon ourselves to make people more aware of these artists, it has, an, it has a net return for us. Mm -hmm. But it also has a positive return for the artists themselves. And, you know, you could also say that it has a positive return on the people that are consuming the product because they're enjoying it and they're having a good time and we're providing that good time. So using a podcast as a way to make something like that happen, to present to people things that they might not have been exposed to before and... Uh, allow them to understand things in a way that, you know, if they were just sold it in the traditional means, they may not think it resonates with them at all. But if you're able to connect with someone on a more human level and see and hear how they think, what they think about, what their perspective on th certain things are, um, it creates more of a, a bond and a connection to, to the artists that are creating this work. You value it more. And when you go out and support it, you are you are creating positivity out of a system that traditionally now is based on, you know, let me just take everything I can out of that artist and make as much money for me as I can make out of that artist. And who cares if the work starts to suffer or if this person, you know, goes crazy or whatever the consequences are. Th starting to think about things in a way where we are engaging with things that positively uh, affect our environment rather than negatively. Mm -hmm. So do you think it is possible to generate the same kind of widespread awareness um, that a network like CNN or Fox News would, uh, would have access to today in a way that is not based on exploitation the way these things are you know is it possible for us to build structures that that do things differently and have different value sets and for something like that to actually catch on is if you're talking about just like as a media outlet i i almost think that it would be difficult without resorting to some of the same sensationalist techniques that they do hmm. and i only mean that in the sense that like delivering good information truth-telling information but in in some of the same formats that they do 
because it's almost like, you know, no matter how well-researched, no matter how thorough the presentation is, it still has to be delivered in an entertaining way, you know, especially to be on television. So there's an inherent difficulty of, like, television news. You know, something like Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman, will never break through to the mainstream because it's not trying to. You know, it's it's comfortable at the level that it's at, presentation-wise, yeah. um, you know, video quality-wise. And I love Democracy Now! I mean, I watch it, um, you know, almost every day. Uh, but I think that that's, um, and that's something that Russia today definitely has going for it, is that it actually is able to sort of visually present a lot of this content in, like, you know, flashy ways, you know, I mean, like, not nearly at the same budget and level as like CNN and stuff. But I mean, in an ideal world, it would be, I mean, I would prefer it if people, you know, like Abby or like me could just go out there and just like talk you right, know, for yeah. an hour, you know, do like what we're doing now on, on television. Right. Um, but I just don't, I just don't think it works that way these days. Like, and that's why someone like Alex Jones is so popular, you know, like he is kind of like the he he would be like the perfect example in the alternative media movement of someone who's, you know, really grasping onto those sort yeah. of like Fox News fear mongering techniques and just trying to drive it home, you know. Yeah. Um so I don't know. I mean I think media is definitely evolving though, and people I think we're gonna see a lot more people like Trevor Paglin like Barrett Brown, like hacker slash artist yeah. slash fucking anarchist, um, rabble rousers, like Julian Assange, Bradley Manning, Snowden. I mean, to me, those are the people that, like, I want to hedge my bets on for being able to, like, upset this whole hmm. charade. Well, one can only hope that as things sort of um, trend away from television, as having uh, the same ubiquitous role that it had, uh, like in my childhood, mm -hmm. um, and that sort of gets replaced by the internet and the uh, the ability to have content delivered to you via the internet rather than through a cable box. You know, I think that sort of opens things up because, you know, using my myself as an example, I watch so little television because the format of things just it doesn't interest me anymore it's a distraction after being exposed to podcasts where you can listen to people talk for two or three hours and it's raw and unedited why would i want to like watch some charade you know where people are you know someone's telling them in their ear okay you got three seconds to say this and then we're going to commercial break and it's all plotted out and no one ever gets to say anything that pops into their mind uh, my only hope is that as we move away from that sort of controlled theatrical world we move into a, a, a world where people are more accepting of a non-glossy produced reality mm -hmm. where they can accept things like sitting and listening to people talking for two hours as an acceptable form of entertainment yeah that, Going back to the C-SPAN model. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. I mean, C-SPAN is still probably the best, like, news channel on mainstream cable yeah. packages. I mean, it's just fucking air, straight up, 
you know, yeah. two hour long book TV presentations. Yeah. Um, or you just sit and watch the meeting happening. Yeah. In front of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm totally down for that. I think that's, and that, I mean, I would like to see things heading in that direction, but, um, you know, they're always the people who were trying to fight, basically, when I say they, I mean, just like the U.S. establishment, um, you know, the, the corporatocracy, the military industrial complex. I'm using all these buzzwords. Yeah. But we need to fight against these people who have at their disposal the best tools available. You know, flashy media, expensive media presentations. So I think that needs to be taken into account when, you know, I, I think there needs to be some immediacy to it. I'm not saying everybody needs to radicalize and buy riot gear and gas masks, you know, just yet. But there needs to be some immediacy to the, if the intent is to disrupt the system. And I think that that's sort of, you know, some and some of that flashy CNN style, you know, media, you know, if you're going to fight the media war, you might as well use some of their own weapons against them. That's true. I mean, they got themselves this far, so they must be doing something yeah. right. And I think you can do it without being evil. I mean, you know, not 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 to be yeah. Google and say don't be evil and not mean it. I mean, like you can do it with good intentions and take it to just to a certain point. You know, just as much as you need to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the hope anyway. Let's all let's yeah. leave this on a positive note. Yeah. And say we hope that this is the way things are going to be able to turn out. Um. I think it, it's uh, been awesome talking to you this, what is it, we're at two-hour mark now. Uh, so I definitely thank you for coming down. We're going to wrap this up with some trivia. So all you listeners out there, if there are any listeners out there. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Was, thank you very much for fun. being here, Robbie. Uh, and a lot of these questions are related to Robbie. And if you've been listening to the podcast today, you probably know the answer to some of these at least. <laughs> Uh, I'll explain to people how to participate in this contest. Email us at info at slimspresents.com uh, with your answers to the following trivia questions. We'll have seven trivia questions. Whoever gets all seven of these questions correct first emails them to us first. Wins a prize. Today's prize is a pair of Good For Any Show tickets for Slims or the Great American Music Hall. So you can go to any show you want to uh, for a, it's good for a year. You can go to sold out shows. Uh, you can't use it on New Year's and you can't use it at benefit shows. Uh, you cheap fucks. You shouldn't be using it at benefit shows anyway. Um, but it'll get you into just about any show. So it's a pretty awesome prize. So let's get this going. Question number one. In 2004, Robbie directed his beheading hoax video that was erroneously picked up as a worldwide news story without even verifying its authenticity. After discovering the video was, in fact, a hoax meant to expose the lack of mainstream media credibility, the famous, what famous television journalist was quoted as saying, if I met this man in real life, I would give him a good ass kicking, in reference to the video star Ben Vanderford. What famous quote-unquote journalist said the quote, if I met this man in real life, I would give him a good ask. That's question number one. Question number two. 
On Media Roots Radio, Abby and, Ma- and Robbie interviewed the artist and activist Trevor Pegman, who we've been talking about a lot tonight. What was the name of Trevor's book about the CIA's extraordinary rendition program? If you've been listening, you would have heard it. Question number three. Another one you would know if you've been listening. The existence of this clandestine government agency established in 1960, whose motto is supra et ultra, meaning above and beyond, was not officially acknowledged by the U.S. government until 1992. What's the name of that organization? Question number four. And if you've been watching our podcast on video, you have a big clue to this question. The Bohemian Club's annual cremation of care ceremony is performed in front of a massive shrine sculpted in the form of what animal? Hopefully you've been watching. All right. not our last we have a few more question number five what well-known journalist provided the voice of the aforementioned animal shrine for many years of the cremation of care ceremony famous journalist all right we're digging into robbie's interests here seminal industrial band coil claims the name of the band was inspired by the omnipresence of the coils shaped in nature. What's the mathematical principle that creates this spiral phenomenon? I'll accept two possible answers for this one. And finally, question number seven. John Balance and Peter Christofferson of Coil teamed up with controversial experimental artist Boyd Rice for a single split release with Current 93. What was the name of the alias they went under for that split release? They only used it once. What is the name of that band? If you have the answers to those questions, get them to me as soon as you can at info at slimspresents.com. First person to submit all the correct answers will win the prize. Good for any show tickets. If, if nobody gets them all right, the first person to get the most right will win. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Between You, Me, and Jose, the Slims Presents podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Robbie Martin, for coming by. Definitely appreciate you taking two hours out of your life to come and hang out with us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Big shout out to Donnell, who was a trooper sitting here like a fucking soldier. <laughs> I'm just here hanging, guys. <laughs> hanging out. For like fucking five hours straight, podcasting up in this motherfucker big shout out to Donnell. We'll be back next week with a new guest. Check it out. Good night.